You know, very often, as we seek to understand our lives, as we seek to follow God, we often encounter trouble. We encounter barriers, oh, speed bumps in our life that are there and they stand in our way. And sometimes those speed bumps are small, sometimes they're large, sometimes they're huge, sometimes they're uh, they're so uh, large before us that we wonder, not only can I move on, but Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you doing this? Why is this happening to me? And we deal with this issue in our lives about the, the presence of suffering, the presence of struggles, the presence of evil. How do we understand it? Has anyone else ever struggled with this or is it just me? Well, today on Deep in Scripture, we're going to be looking at a verse from the Old Testament, a book that eh, maybe a bunch of you haven't looked at in a whole long time, Habakkuk. However you say it, I, I jokingly say that because I was an evangelical Protestant, now I'm a Catholic, and it seems like I've heard a number of ways of understanding how to say this, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We're going to look at that verse today on Deep in Scripture. But our, the guest that we have for this program, I'm very excited uh, to have on Deep in Scripture, Dr. Thomas Howard. He has joined me on the Journey Home program on EWTN. But this is his first time on Deep in Scripture. When we ask him to pick a verse, he picked the verse from Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll get to that in a moment. But this is Marcus Grodi, your host for Deep in Scripture. Welcome to the Deep in Scripture program, this weekly program in which we, we pause to look at Scripture, hearing it particularly within the mind of the church. And there's a website, deepinscripture.com, if you want to find more about this program, as well as the Coming Home Network International that sponsors the program. You can watch this program live on the Internet. If you go to deepinscripture.com, you can link to the Internet. You can also call us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We're dealing with a, a verse that you may never have heard before. However, if you do the Liturgy of the Hours, you will have read this verse. But did you listen to it? If you have a comment, give us a call, 800-664-5110. Or anytime, you can call the Coming Home Network at 740 740- Four five zero one one seven five, or you can write me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. Now let me tell you about Dr. Thomas Howard. I, I have to say this, uh, that I've met many great, made many great friends since coming home to the Catholic Church, and I will say that uh, one that I consider one of the greatest privileges of getting to know, and that's Dr. Howard. He was brought up as an evangelical, a fundamentalist Protestant, and then became an Episcopalian at age 25. Uh, he was a very well-respected, renowned professor of English for over 30 years and taught at St. John's Seminary in Brighton, Massachusetts. And then, as he describes it, he read his way into the Catholic Church and became Catholic at age 50. Thomas has written many books including Lead Kindly Light on Being Catholic and Evangelical is Not Enough. And I will say that this book, particularly Evangelical is Not Enough, was influential in my own conversion to the Catholic Church, as well as my wife Marilyn, uh, particularly the chapter about prayer. If you haven't done read the book Evangelical is Not Enough, 
I strongly encourage you to do that. If you're wondering where to get a handle on it, you can go to deep, go to the Coming Home Network website, uh, chnetwork.org, and uh, you can get it from our resources or you can get it directly from Ignatius Press. Dr. Howard has written a number of other books that, uh, again, I recommend every book that Tom has written, The Night is Far Spent, on being Catholic, Narnia and beyond. Another one, If Your Mind Wanders at Mass, is a great one, especially for you Catholics out there that wonder how to to get your focus back on Jesus present with us there in the Eucharist. And another book of of Dr. Howard's that I've read recently that I I strongly recommend, especially those of you who like poetry, is his book Dove Descending, which is a a very wonderful discussion of T.S. Eliot's uh, uh, Four Quartets. Um, Maybe Dr. Howard will talk a bit about that when he comes online in a moment. Before we ask uh, Tom to join us, I'd like to get back to our text for today, Habakkuk 3.15. This little book of Habakkuk you can read in five minutes, ten minutes, uh, though it may take a long, long time to truly uh, gather all that the Lord is teaching us in this uh, minor prophet from the Old Testament. It's a short book. We don't know very much about the author at all. It's probably written around the late 7th century B.C., 700 years or so before Christ, approximately 600 years or so, though we're not sure. The book, most of the book is a dialogue between the author, the prophet, and God, a lament. In other words, there are complaints, there are, uh, you know, questions, like, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and thou will not hear? Have you ever prayed that to God? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like your prayers are bouncing off infinity without God hearing? Well, we have this dialogue in Habakkuk. And then the second part of this book is a, a poem, a prayer poem. And it's in that section that Dr. Howard has chosen for us. He, the verse he's chosen is Habakkuk 3.16, and I'm going to read a little bit beyond that. I'm going to read also verse 17 and 18, because with the verse that he's chosen, these are very important scriptures. So let me read this portion of scripture. We'll take a break, and then Dr. Howard will join us. And I'm reading from Habakkuk 3.16 through 18. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My steps totter beneath me. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree do not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on The Journey Home. 
Join Marcus for part one of a special roundtable episode when he talks with former Anglicans fathers Eric Bergman, Dwight Longenecker, and Christopher Phillips about the Pope's recent invitation to Anglicans to enter into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Gerdeis' book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Gerdeis' book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and I'm joined today by Dr. Thomas Howard. Hello, Tom. Hello, Marcus. How are you? Well, I'm I'm just great, and right. I'm even better because I've got you on Deep in Scripture. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And uh, are you still living out there in the shadows of my old alma mater? Yes, I live in Manchester, Mass., or otherwise known as Manchester-by-the-Sea, just a little town north of Boston. Yeah. But it's near your seminary alma mater. That's right. Well, you used to teach nearby, too, right? Uh, yes, I, I taught here. I'm retired now, but I taught uh, here for 15 years before I became a Catholic. Well, as I mentioned to you other times, uh, I remember reading some of your stuff back when I was still a Protestant without any thought of Catholic. And I think at the time I was in seminary, I was a Congregationalist, so I was about as unliturgical as you could get. <laughs> Um, and uh, very influenced by the British Congregationalists. Um, and uh, But it was reading some of your books during that time, when you were still Episcopalian, uh, that helped open my eyes to the beauty and the power of liturgy. And I think that was also your, a part of your own journey to the Catholic Church, was discovering the beauty and importance of liturgy. Is that right? Yes, very much so. I, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, before we get into the verse, a number of your books, Tom, and I, I wanted to make sure I took time because I, I want to encourage the audience, uh, if they haven't read any of your books, I, I really strongly encourage them to do so. They're all from Ignatius Press, and they're all available online or at local bookstores. Uh, but the book that I wanted to, though, mention, just to be sure, uh, I'm not sure it's the book of, of, of the list that you would want me to mention if we wanted to talk about anything, but your book, Dove Descending, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I was wondering, before we get into Scripture, this is a book in which you tell us what T.S. Eliot was trying to tell us in his quartets. Yeah. Uh, and uh, was did this come from a class you had taught or from your own study and love for poetry? Well, it was uh, both, really. I first, uh, of course, I had heard of T.S. Eliot, the American and then English poet. He was actually born in St. Louis, and his family was from Boston. And, but he eventually took out English citizenship uh, in the 19, oh, before 
before before or during the First World War, somewhere along in there. Um, and uh, he, in my estimation, is uh, hands down the greatest English language poet of the modern era. And uh, he uh, became a Christian uh, in about 1927. He was the he was the darling of the sort of the what should we say, the, the disenchanted, <laughs> agnostic, modern era. And he wrote some early poems in the early 20th century, which express the, the despair, the disgust, uh, the boredom, uh, and the disenchantment of the modern era, and everybody loved him. Then, when he became a Christian, everybody was outraged. Uh, the academic and the intellectual and literary establishment thought he'd gone out of his mind. But he was a wonderful convert and just very quietly put his Christian cards on the table. And this poem uh, that my book talks about, mm-hmm. uh, called Four Quartets, uh, makes people despair because you start reading it and you think, where are we? I can't understand a line of this. Um, but I came upon it in graduate school in New York City and fell in love with it. Uh, it's a, And I would put it in a class with... Charth Cathedral and mm-hmm. Bach's B minor Mass and uh, Mozart's Requiem and a few other monuments of uh, as one of the great greatest monuments of Christian testimony uh, in the history of the Western world. And my the book simply is me, uh, the teacher who had taught it many times to students, trying to take readers by the hand, line by line, mm-hmm. uh, just to walk along through what would otherwise be a very, very difficult poem. Yeah, I remember when I got your book, I immediately went out and bought the quartets, uh-huh. and so that I had them side by side as I went through them, and, oh, yeah. and, and I found it fascinating, and I I encourage the audience to do that. And and you know something else, uh, Dr. Howard, that that maybe this is why I needed to do this. And the reason I'm, I'm spending time doing this with our discussion of Habakkuk before we get in it is the part of Habakkuk we're looking at is Hebrew poetry. And, and I think we, as moderns, have uh, have lost the patience for poetry. Yeah. And I think we, we suffer for that. Yes. And I think a lot of the difficulty comes from people thinking that poetry is language sort of uh, elaborated or gussied up or something, whereas poetry is really uh, language, uh, which we say, distilled and smelted and boiled down to its most uh, gem-like purity. I often compare it, poetry, to a Bunsen burner. I know nothing about chemistry, but I <laughs> understand that in a, in a lab, you don't want a great big bonfire from your and Bernie, you want it down to a little prick of blue flame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's exactly what poetry is. It's language distilled to its uh, most pure, gem-like uh, hardness. Uh, and that's what uh, T.S. Eliot's poetry is very much like. So it's, in one sense, it's difficult, but in, in another sense, it's, a, it's an exhilarating and enriching experience if you put your mind to it. Well, I, I thank you for this book, because... I've been in, I've been involved with poetry in a, in a way all my life, more from a music standpoint, and I've often gotten bogged down when I read authors like T.S. Eliot and and uh, and 
uh, Hopkins and, and others, who others will, you know, will say these are great monuments, and I'll look at them and, and wonder what what am I missing? So, uh, and that's my own ignorance um, and uh, obtuseness. But thank you for that book, and again, I highly recommend it. You've chosen for us a poem from Habakkuk to look at. And let me read it again, this, just verse 16, so short. And then I'd like you to, to just start by, in general, why, why did you choose this? Let me read it again. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My steps totter beneath me. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade me. Now, it's, it's the day before New Year's. And it almost makes me wonder if this is a description of what a lot of people will feel like at about three in the morning when they're trying to get home from their parties. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad, uh, not a bad <laughs> citation. <laughs> yes, when we, the new year is upon us, and well, this is an interesting uh, little section, little text here uh, from Habakkuk, and of course, on first glance. Uh, it looks very unlikely. It's not very upbeat or encouraging. Uh, and it almost uh, looks as though the prophet, if he's not exactly gloating, at least he, he, what he really is anticipating is how God will smite his enemies. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like a very upbeat attitude for Christians. <laughs> but I think um, there's one little, there's a, a lovely little observation from C.S. Lewis in his little book, The Reflections on the Psalms, and he's talking about the way the Old Testament Hebrews uh, just went on and on. I mean, they got apoplectic about how wicked the world, the heathen world was. And Lewis pointed out a thing that I had never thought of before I read. Uh, that little section where he's talking about one of the psalms, the the so-called imprecatory psalms, which called down God's wrath on uh, the psalmist's enemies and so on. seems very unchristian. But he said um, the Jews, uh, to them, evil mattered. It was a horror. It was dreadful. And you do not find that in the ancient pagan religions. You find no disgust or horror in the face of evil, of sexual immorality or cruelty uh, or cynicism, any of the rest of that, the, the pagan religions do not lament that, whereas a Jew who had encountered the purity of God uh, was capable of um, this apparently harsh attitude, this rage against evil. And I think, you know, Habakkuk is one of those prophets and the only reason, of course, one uh, would be enraged over evil is because one has a prior notion of what is good, yes. of what is wholeness, of what's healthy, of what is true liberty and purity and freedom. And the Old Testament Jew or the Christian you know, is aware of how evil uh, leeches away at the, at the good um, and the beauty and the goodness of the world that God has made, and most particularly of the human being. And Habakkuk is writing, uh, he's one of the so-called minor prophets, all those 12 little books at the end of the Old Testament, uh, and he's writing, as Marcus has already uh, mentioned, in the time of, uh, well, when he started out, it was during the time of Manasseh, who built 
Billy Graham used to say that Manasseh was the wickedest king ever. <laughs> uh, but then he, Habakkuk finished up after a good man named Josiah had come to the throne. These are the kings of, of Judah, mm-hmm. uh, which is the southern part of the kingdom there. And so Habakkuk was writing right through good and evil. And um, wh- where I first became uh, conscious of this little uh, text that uh, Marcus has read, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my steps totter. Uh, obviously, this man, Habakkuk, is uh, stricken with uh, the awesomeness of the, the person of God himself and also of God's wrath, which is, again, not a popular topic. It's not, it doesn't seem particularly encouraging, not very upbeat. Uh, there's not a lot of um, comfort or solace if you take a verse like this all by itself. You think, well, how vengeful this, uh, this prophet is and so on. But um, there is, um, there's more to be said about this. Um, as I say, when I first became aware of this verse, it was in a different translation. It said, decay invades my bones. Well, rottenness enters my bones. It's all the same thing, of course. And I got to thinking, now, what sort of man would express himself that way? Rottenness enters my bones. Decay invades my bones. In other words, I am shaken to the very roots of my being in the face of what God is doing. And if you read the whole book, of course, and the rest of these prophets, all the prophets, the big ones, and these so-called minor prophets, you realize that what they are awestruck about is not just what God is going to do to my enemies and so on. It's the whole prior question of who God is and what God is. I mean, Isaiah was not particularly in trouble in the sixth chapter, that famous verse, the famous uh, scene where he is given the vision of the Lord. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the seraphim uh, were there by his throne and so on. And Isaiah's reaction is to say, woe is me. Uh, And that was simply in that God wasn't threatening him at that point, but the the purity and the holiness, the the burning white hot uh, sanctity of the presence of God had the effect on this good man of uh, undoing him, so to speak. It, it shook him to his innermost being, even though it had nothing at that point to do with God's punishment of Isaiah's enemies. So this is a big theme all the way through the prophets, or the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, of uh, this uh, tremendous awe in the presence of God. And I... Um, you know, have I ever had the experience of having to cry out to God, decay invades my bones. I am so, you know, transfixed by the vision of, of the might, of the glory, of the sanctity, the purity of the presence of God. And I was speaking to uh, Marcus just before the yep. program, how I, how I came across this in recent years was in the Liturgy of the Hours. A lot of uh, lay Catholics don't make use of this wonderful treasure. It it originally, of course, uh, is drawn from the daily and hourly reciting of Scripture in the monasteries. 
but we have the Liturgy of the Hours now, which is a shortened form, and you can read it. There, there are psalms and prayers for morning prayer, daytime prayer, and evening prayer. Uh, my wife and I use it every day for morning prayer and evening prayer, and we're just lay people. Uh, and it was in the Liturgy of the Hours that this text uh, was included. And I thought, good gracious me, here's the Church <laughs> giving us this text, isn't this a little uh, fierce? Isn't this a little uh, uh, unlikely? Because, of course, not everything in Scripture is just for my immediate comfort or solace Mm -hmm. or encouragement. It all has to do with, of course, the encouragement of who God is and what he has done for us. So I recommend that uh, to readers to look into this matter of the Liturgy of the Hours, which itself raises the question of, you know, pre-canned uh, texts uh, of Scripture or particularly of written-out prayers. And uh, that is, a lot of us, in my own background, of course, prayer was only um, valid or legitimate or real if I was simply talking spontaneously and informally and sort of immediately to the Lord, just expressing myself. And, of course, the Lord loves those prayers. Yep. He, uh, that's, he wants us to say whatever is on our heart at the moment. But from the beginning, from the, the God's revelation of himself to the Jews at the very beginning, right on until now in the Church, the Church, uh, the Old Testament and the Church, gives us what we might call pre-canned prayers, and the great thing about those is that they take me out of myself, my immediate situation. I may feel trapped in the clutter of life or the pressures or an immediate grief or uncertainty or fear or worry, uh, whatever the thing is, uh, but the, the, the prayer that's given to us by the Church, the prayers, and in Scripture, take me, they lift me from the trap of my immediate situation and enable me to pray as I uh, should pray. Uh, they, they set me free into a bigger realm. They teach me to pray, um, to, to say what I would say if I really had my wits about me, if I really knew the Lord well. Uh, there was one, one prayer which I loved as an Episcopalian, which came from the old Latin prayers of the Church. And it's, uh, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. Well, I, I would wish that I could say that, uh, but I probably wouldn't have been able to come up with it by myself, so it both expresses what I, as the individual Christian, would like to say, and it also teaches me how to say it. And it so brings this is one of those prayers. And and, it, and the beauty of the liturgy hours, as well as the other liturgical his, uh, heritage that we have, truly is a way of uniting us in prayer. You know, a group of a hundred people praying spontaneously is uh, the definition of the word cacophony. <laughs> But when we can pray together, united by the Spirit, praying the words that have this great tradition, then it unites us 
both vertically as well as horizontally. The, the, the beauty of that. Father, uh, uh, Doctor, we're going to take a break. I want to look again at this passage from a couple angles. Uh, it's, this is Hebrew poetry. And many of our viewers or, or listeners may not uh, have had anyone talk to them about how to understand Hebrew poetry. We can look at that a little bit. Uh, but also, again, the beauty of, from a Catholic perspective, recognizing that there are layers of interpretation of Scripture. Uh, I'd like us to talk about uh, the enemies, the people in this passage have a different, a, a, another way of looking at it so that it truly brings it home to us um, and how this applies to you and me. We'll look at that when we come back from the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody. I'm joined today by Dr. Thomas Howard, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Mother Angelica Live Classics. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the mother of God and our mother too. But how do we go about entering into a relationship with her? Join Mother as she talks about Our Lady and the importance of her role in our life. That's on the next Mother Angelica Live Classics, only on EWTN. Mother Angelica Live Classics is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Howard today. And uh, and again, uh, Tom, thank you for joining us on the program. Uh, what you said about Liturgy of the Hours, I want to encourage the audience to, to hear about the beauty of this gift that unites us. I mean, in essence, there isn't a, a moment in the world when there isn't someone praying the Liturgy of the Hours. Uh, some priest, some religious, some layperson around the globe uh, is is praying these wonderful psalms. And so again, it unites our prayers vertically as well as horizontally. And, and to me, this, I'm not sure you had planned to talk about this, Tom, and I know you're not a biblical scholar, so I, I, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I wasn't sure if it, within your study of poetry you had ever talked about the uniqueness of, of the Hebrew poetry, for example, that we're looking at in this passage? Well, uh, just uh, what uh, a layman, someone who loves the Scripture and who you know has studied it, uh, I think one of the things you find in Hebrew poetry, uh, it, is, it is passionate. Um, this, these come from the deepest yearnings and cries of anguish, and exaltations and rejoicings uh, and celebrations of the Hebrew people. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the Psalms are sort of the book in the whole of Scripture in which 
the Catholic Church, how should we put it, uh, comes to rest. I mean, the, the Psalms are the, the backbone of our prayer. They are the uh, pattern of our praying, and you have every kind of prayer in the Psalms, and they are poems, of course. And it's interesting uh, that it doesn't depend on rhyme or meter the way we, in the English language, do. You know, we say, uh, uh, little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his Christmas pie. We like the rhythm, and we like Horner and Corner rhyming with each other and so on. And we're accustomed, we're accustomed to that, and it's a wonderful kind of poetry. Uh, but Hebrew poetry is different, and one of the things it depends on is something that's very familiar to Catholics, and that is what you might call antiphonality. It will make one statement, and then there's a little break in the verse, and the second half of the verse says essentially the same thing with a few different words. Um, and uh, this is, you'll, you can pick almost any psalm at random yeah. and see how uh, almost every line of almost every verse is uh, the beginning of one thing, and then it's answered by the second half of the lo- line, which says almost the same thing. We are accustomed to that, we Catholics, from the Mass. Mm-hmm. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit, or, and also with you, whichever way you like to say it, um, and so on. Uh, uh, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. These are, these, these are what are called the antiphons, and the universe, heaven, is ringing with these. Deep calls unto deep. It's the nature of the universe. Male answers to female. Um, mountains answer to valleys. Dawn answers to twilight. You know, uh, heat answers to cold. The whole universe is just a quiver with these wonderfully uh, solemn antiphonalities. And solemn, of course, doesn't mean poker-faced. It means uh, freighted with tremendous significance and meaning. And to truly understand the word solemn, one has to understand the old notion uh, of joy. Uh, and probably any one of uh, us listening today has had the experience of something which is so splendid and so joyous that you want to just be quiet. You don't want to burst out laughing in the presence of something. Well, the manger, we've just been through Christmas. We are in Christmas. We're still in the octave. You come to the manger, it's the most glorious thing in the history of the world up to this point. Here is God with us, but you don't burst out laughing slap each other on the back, you fall on your knees, and yet you are happy. Uh, You may not even be smiling, heaven knows, but you are happy. And that's the way Hebrew poetry is. It it leads us into the precincts of of holiness, uh, where the proper attitude is one of deep joy, which takes the form of of awe and what they used to call solemnity. And because psalms are so much a daily aspect of at least Catholic devotions in the Mass, in the Liturgy of the Hours, especially, I mean, those that that pray all the hours, you know, are praying them six to eight times a day, the psalms, that understanding what you just talked about is important, especially for laity that that open up the Psalms or the Proverbs or any of the wisdom literature and they see a, a verse like the one we looked at, oh, how does that, how do I pray that? 
you, you know, what, what do I mean by this? And I think the those parallelisms that you talked about that are in Hebrew poetry are are are, are fun to look at and, and to examine to help you understand that sometimes the parallelism between two verses, the antiphons are 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 another way of saying the same thing. You know, the sun rises in the morning, yea, it is morning or something. Sometimes they're the opposite. Um, and, and when you look closely, and often the psalmist breaks from the parallelism when they reach something they want you to hear. And it's often the break from the parallels that are making the biggest point. So example, in our passage, the prophet says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Though they're, they're a rep- repetition of the same idea. The next, rottenness enters into my bones, my steps totter beneath me. In a way, he's saying some similar things. Then the third line is different. I will quietly wait for the trouble, the day of trouble, to come upon people who invade us. There's no parallel there. There's a statement. He's just done two parallels, saying similar things twice, and then all of a sudden he he makes a statement that it's almost as if he's been reaching a crescendo of, as you said, his passion about the struggle that he's going through and what he's hoping God will do in their lives. And what I was wondering, uh, Tom, help the audience, if you will. I mean, how do I pray this? It's in the Liturgy of the Hours. You know, the beauty of Catholic interpretation is that there are levels of understanding Scripture. There's the literal and then the different layers. And particularly in this passage, you know, how, how can we pray this so that it awakens us to draw nearer to our, our glorious God? Yes, well, I think, uh, you know, if, if one does uh, come upon this uh, prayer, this testimony of Habakkuk as he's talking to the Lord, uh, you you begin to see these levels that you are talking about, Marcus. Uh, uh, on the surface of it, you could say, well, he's just uh, he is uh, awestruck, almost uh, paralyzed, almost undone, should we say, with fear at what's going to happen to his enemies. Uh, that is an awesome thing. Uh, and yet, uh, there's a deeper level to the thing, of course. Namely, this is God, who is ultimately good, not uh, sadistic, not merely harsh. But this God, whom we love, who is our Savior, who, whom um, uh, Habakkuk and all the prophets talk about, the whole thing that God is doing is uh, bearing witness to his name, redeeming Israel, saving Israel for their enemies, and so on. He is a saving God. He's a, he's a wonderful God. And we, of course, Habakkuk didn't know this, but are, we um, are the recipients of the further revelation when God came to us in his own son at, uh, at the, uh, the Nativity, which we celebrate in this season of the year. So he's always about the business of saving. And so... Uh, I think this uh, decay or rottenness invading the bones of this faithful man is a combination, humanly speaking, 
you know, I can't wait to see justice done after all the uh, injustice and cruelty that has been inflicted upon God's faithful people. But it's also in the face of the being of God himself. And then he goes on to say, as you've already read, Marcus, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. In other words, not so much that they will be crushed as that justice will be done. Things will be set right. This is what we wait for. If a man or if a nation sets its face against the salvation, against freedom, against purity, against holiness, uh, then, of course, that is destruction and trouble. And to refer to C.S. Lewis again, uh, he has a marvelous comment about this kind of thing which you run across in the Psalms very frequently, this apparently very harsh attitude toward my enemies and for David and the other psalmists and Israel. These were external nations, the Amalekites, the Philistines, the Edomites, and so on, coming at them. Um, but C.S. Lewis says, we can't make much more use of those things. I can't, uh, as a Christian, curse my enemies the way they did. But what I can curse and what I can see as my real enemy is uh, evil inside of me, yes. selfishness, yeah. egocentrism, pettiness, venality, cravenness, uh, cowardice, uh, impurity, you know, undisciplined thoughts, all these things mm-hmm. that we respectable people, so-called respectable, find ourselves tussling with it, and we realize that what was played out in big terms, geographically, you know, across uh, borders and so on, from one nation to another back there, the whole struggle is going on in my bosom. Mm-hmm. And so, Lord, make me have the same attitude toward my sins, my inner inclinations, which uh, would destroy the freedom, the purity, uh, the solace that you would bring to me if you had your way. You know, overthrow these enemies inside of me. There's a sense in which this uh, short uh, poetic verse reminds me of Romans 7. Oh, yes, poor St. Paul. Paul is saying, um, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, so then it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. And then he goes on to say, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, so in essence, I mean that's what the psalm, what the prophet is dealing with here too. Yeah, very and, much so. And in it, I'm drawn, you know, in your book Dove Descending, in which you deal with T.S. Eliot's poem, which obviously we don't have time on this whole program to go through. But if you would talk to the audience also that that wonderful statement by T.S. Eliot that I think you used in the opening of that book that the way up and the way down are one in the same that when I when you recommended this first today I remembered that quote from your book and it talks about our spiritual journey is not always highs but there are but the journey is ups and downs 
as this psalmist talks about. Yeah. And that, that statement, the way up and the way down, are the same. To listen, to hear that for the first time or hear it superficially, you think, well, that's just a contradiction. That doesn't make any sense. But T.S. Eliot drew this from St. John of the Cross. And it also is, it goes all the way back to the Greek, uh, to a maxim that the Greeks had. And the idea is that um, God is the goal of my spirit. That's what I'm made for, and my deepest yearnings are for him. And the way to God um, can be through what the saints and the monks in the Middle Ages called uh, the via negativa, the way of, seems to be negation of uh, putting aside all the interests of the world. It, it came to celibacy for the nuns and the monks and the clergy, um, putting aside, and yet marriage, that would be the way up. That's a wonderful, full, humanly fulfilling state of affairs, and I can come to know God through that avenue or uh, equally through the apparent uh, avenue of the negative way of uh, putting off the privileges of the flesh and so on. And it can be through what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, uh, when it looks as though all is blackness, and the saints testify to this. Uh, and yet, and yet, God is the omega point. He is there at what seems like the end of the line, at the, at the bottom of the blind alley. Or the same thing is true uh, the, the way up, the, the, um, when one is walking in the light. The scripture talks uh, again and again about walking in the light, that's kind of the antiphon to uh, the times when we know darkness and suffering, physical pain, loss, um, difficulty with one's offspring, you know, uh, whatever the trouble may be, uh, that can be the darkness through which um, the Lord makes himself known. In his poem, T.S. Eliot says, be still and let the darkness come upon you, which will be the darkness of God. Uh, and Tom, the same is also true of uh, uh, the life's hilarious experiences. All right. Uh, we're going to take another break. And the last quote you just gave from T.S. Eliot is perfect, because when we come back, it, kind of a way of drawing this to a close, we're you know, here approaching a brand new secular New Year's. You know, the, Our ecclesial year began uh, at the beginning of Advent, but here we are. Where often people are caught up in making uh, commitments to be different, to change. Maybe the new year, I want to get cl- closer to God. Maybe I feel like this psalmist, or maybe like Paul in Romans. And I- I'm wondering if maybe the key phrase in this, which again connects to your T.S. Eliot quote, where this prophet says, I will quietly wait. Let's When we come back after the break, talk about what that means for us in the highs and the lows of life to quietly wait for the Lord. Let's let's deal with that when we come back after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined today by Dr. Thomas Howard, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network.
The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Dr. Thomas Howard. I just want to remind you, in case you haven't had a chance to read one of Dr. Howard's books, if you go to Ignatius Press website uh, on the internet, and then once you get to that site, if you look at books and then Catholic authors, you can click on the works of Thomas Howard, and there are all his books, and uh, all nine of them, and I strongly would encourage you to, to take a look at what Thomas has focused on, reflecting on his own journey of life, but also from his work as a scholar. What do you think, Tom? I will quietly wait. Well, it's uh, that's that's sort of the upshot of this little text here, and that itself, I will quietly wait for God's acting in this situation, which seems so negative and so terrible. And he picks up that theme in this beautiful, beautiful little conclusion, and he says, even though the, uh, the fig tree doesn't blossom, there's no fruit, no grapes on the vines. You know, the, the olive crop fails, the fields yield no food, the flocks are cut off from the fold, there's no herd in the stalls. Uh, you know, everything is is a bummer, as I would say now. I mean, I, every, all is lost. There's, there's no cause for rejoicing. There's no, you know, I'm up against a blank wall. And then the little word, yet, yet. And it's the same as that I will quietly wait. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy, it's that future tense, you know, I'm not there yet, I don't see the outcome, I don't see the light, but I trust God. It's the God whose presence made Isaiah say, woe is me. It's the God, the vision of whom uh, makes me say, decay invades my bones. I tremble in his presence, and yet I know he is my life, he is my salvation. So he says, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I don't see it yet. I will joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds feet, like one of these mountain goats or gazelles up in the heights. He makes me tread upon my high places. He will bring me to joy. And I think that's the, that's the great uh, solace of this, um, this uh, text from Habakkuk. And I, I think the wisdom is in there that the church has given us, for example, the Liturgy of the Hours or the Mass, and and that, that the church has recognized both in its wisdom but from its practice the beauty of the scriptures because, you know, we are called to pray them on even on days that are high or days that are low. And in essence, this waiting quietly on the Lord is... Uh, is another way of saying trust. Whether I feel it or not, whether, I mean, the description of verse 17 is all about the way people feel about the economy today or, or where they maybe feel about the government or, may, you know, they, they may feel like all is lost, but yet 
the trust in God. Um, it's in his hands. Every single day when we begin the Liturgy of the Hours, as we usually encourage to pray Psalm 95, right? Yes. And it talks about everything's in the hands of God. The introit, yeah. You know, that's how we begin every day. The church encourages to begin by recognizing yeah. that all is in the hands of God, and therefore we bow, we kneel before the Lord our Maker. And of course, then it ends with this <laughs> this encouragement not to take God for granted, you know, and uh, God gets a bit frustrated with us when we take him for granted. But in this verse that you've chosen, Habakkuk, this phrase, I will quietly wait. And uh, again, as you've said, it's not that we want other people to be destroyed, the ones that are causing us the problem. He's dealing more with the enemies that we have more often within ourselves, yeah. sin. That's yes, and I, you know, the, the, the liturgy of the church, I mean, there is no aspect of human life, joy, sorrow, success, failure, darkness, light, perplexity, rejoicing, whatever. There is no aspect of our mortal life which the church leaves out. In the liturgy of the Mass, in the liturgy of the hours, in the, in the scripture the church gives us, it takes us through the whole thing. Nothing is swept under the rug. All of our experiences are there, and they are all referred uh, into the hands of, of the Lord, who is our salvation. And they're expressed in those psalms. And I'm sure this was never true for you, Tom, but I know when I was learning to pray the liturgy hours, there was a time in my self-centeredness, my own arrogance, um, I'm reading one of the Psalms and I'm thinking, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, why am I saying this? How, yeah. how do I place it God? Yeah. And I remember a priest saying, okay, maybe at this moment you don't think it applies to you, but at this moment, is there somebody else in the world that this applies to? Yeah. And there you find yourself not just praying individually, but we pray as a body. Yeah. I often uh, think uh, almost daily when I'm doing the Liturgy of the Hours, I think, well, if, if this isn't me at this moment feeling like saying this, at least I'm listening to a holy man pray. <laughs> I'm listening to the psalmist pray. Oh, that's how he prays, is it? What do I have to learn from this? Exactly. The challenge of us as, as the church yeah. instructs us as yeah. we grow closer to him. I mean, even the Psalm 95, uh, yeah. introit and so on, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us heartily rejoice. I don't always feel like that, but it is an, it's, a, it's an admonition, it's an injunction for me to, and indeed, but the, the basis of our ultimate freedom and joy is the Lord himself and not circumstance. Well, Dr. Howard, thank you so much for the, the privilege of having you on Deep in Scripture. It's been a great pleasure. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, uh, Marcus. All right, Tom, thanks a lot. And all of you, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Happy New Year. I pray that the Lord will particularly draw you closer to Him. God bless you.